0: Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. My name's Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, as always, this week. Joining us from the road is Jorna Taylor. is a nonprofit consultant here in Wisconsin. Welcome, Jorna.
1: Good morning from the road.
0: It's good to have you. And as always, Robert Craig, our Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good morning, everyone. So we have a number of topics this week. We are going to get to the latest on Gab and campaign finance, but we are going to start this week by talking about our favorite operation, the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. And as our listeners know, we think this thing is a completely failed and discredited structure, and we ought to be closing it and looking at Uh, opening up a public agency, so we have been talking a lot about this, and it's back in the news this week with the information that $2 million was given to John Deere in order to help facilitate the moving of 100 jobs in Janesville to create 80 jobs in Horicon. And so we have a special guest this week uh, to talk a little bit more about that. That is Representative Deborah Colstie. Deborah represents the Janesville area. Deborah, thanks for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you very much, Matt, for having me on. Um, this is so vital to Janesville, a topic that the whole state needs to address. But when you talk about a failed agency, they certainly failed Janesville and Rock County.
0: So tell us a little bit more about what happened and what uh, what you guys did this week to try to push back against this.
2: Janesville Gazette, through their own investigation, found out that Weedick had given John Deere $2 million, and there was going to be a loss of 100 jobs in Janesville, and they were for the production of 80 jobs in Horicon. Actually, it seemed unbelievable to us, and um, so we just wrote a letter and and demanded to know why they would take jobs away from Wisconsin communities and um, participate in these kind of shenanigans. Janesville has had a very hard time with the, you know, idling of um, GM, and now we just learned this week that it will be a closed plant now. I, I guess that gives us an opportunity to try to find a- someone to take over that space, but it- it's been a hard time for this community. And what's most frustrating is that I got the press release from WIDA, and they had, they knew and had the ability to get Rebecca Clayfish there, and have Majority Leader Fitzgerald on board to talk about what a great organization they are, and they didn't take the time to call any officials within our county um, economic development, uh, any of the legislators. I, I mean, I, I just find it absurd they would get a positive comment from Fitzgerald. I mean, once again, it's proving that, you know, they're kowtowing to a certain echelon of people, and um, in this case, Rock County got left out.
1: So let me see if I've got the math right on here you know it wasn't my major in college I was poli-sci so forgive me but we gave these are nice round numbers so yeah so we got two million dollars to move a hundred jobs but actually only moved 80 and we paid for that with our taxpayer dollars from one Wisconsin community to another correct um this doesn't make any sense to me
2: you know a letter they wrote back to us said, oh, really, we gave the tax credits for the investment. But in their press release, it said to create 80 full-time jobs. And never in their, in their press release did they say, oh, by the way, we'll be losing 100 jobs for this creation of 80 jobs.
1: So the typical weed deck bait bait-and-switch, pull the wool over the taxpayer eyes, and then Governor Walker's claiming job creation, because look at all these great jobs that we've put to this community over here.
2: Right. You know, just reading their press release, it's just an aggravation. I mean, besides being maddening, it's, it's an aggravation that we can pull together Rebecca Clayfish and have a big up, and Cheryl can make a comment, but nobody that's actually losing the jobs gets notified at all. It is frustrating.
3: So, Representative, this is uh, Robert Craig. One thing uh, w- we think this illustrates, and I'd like to get your comment on this, We've been saying for a while that the problem with WEDEC is not just incompetence or administrative problems or lack of competent personnel at the top and turnover, all of those issues. It's a fundamental philosophy. Uh, Rather than seeing themselves as trying to maximize opportunity for Wisconsin workers, they actually see their role as to help well-connected corporations. And so their goal here is to help John Deere. And it doesn't matter they're willing to use our money. It doesn't matter if there's a net loss in jobs. In fact, they have opposed, the, head, the new head of Weedek, David Aarons, has opposed having a requirement that there be a net increase in jobs whenever WEDEC gives money to a company for job creation on the grounds that would discourage modernization. So the problem is, when modernization means fewer jobs, that's not a public interest. So I'm not saying that John Deere shouldn't be eligible for public support, but they should only get it when they actually expand opportunity for workers.
2: And I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, this is one of those obvious cases, you know, when they said, well, they're spending um, X amount of dollars, and therefore we should give them help. Well, I, I'm going to assume those dollars need to be expended for the company to do whatever they need to do. Um, what we should be interested in is in who's going who's gonna to benefit from here, who's going to get jobs, how's it going to stimulate our economy through salary and wages. Um, and I, I don't think these credits do that. So,
0: yeah, we see this as, again, more just sort of job poaching, right, whether whether it's forcing one city to compete with another or a state to compete against another state. We don't see this as really, as Robert said, adding any
3: real economic opportunity. Well, except uh, the state oh, poaching you know, know, jobs from one in, part in of the their, state for another. Re- I'm sorry, Robert. Yeah, in, go in ahead. In their
2: reply to us, they said they don't play favoritism. Favoritism, and they don't want to, you know, encourage one district over another. But I got to tell you, it causes me concern when the Republicans show up for the photo op in the statements and nobody here was notified. Um, Somebody's playing favoritism.
0: No representative. You're absolutely right to be concerned. I I don't know if you're aware, but we did research on WEDEC and where it's uh, where it's uh, money had gone in terms of job creation and where the jobs were created. And we found that there was 86% uh, more jobs created in Republican districts as opposed to Democratic districts.
3: Yeah, and that varies, but Republican Senate districts. And, and one I remember year. seeing
2: that data. Yeah, so we're, we're concerned concerning. about it's that. Just the disrespect for our community not to involve anybody or let anybody know. Um, and that, that causes, I mean, that's just not right.
3: We think when they close WEDEC, and it will be closed one day, that needs to be replaced with a fully accountable public agency whose only goal is to expand economic opportunity for Wisconsinites and if corporations can do things and we can enable it that lead to that goal then that's great but if not the state has no business choosing one business or one company over another or helping a John Deere or not helping the, the tens of thousands of small businesses across the state unless there is some compelling re- public interest and reason and that would be more opportunity for Wisconsin workers okay.
2: um, one of my bills you know we, we did a tax credit portability bill um last session and i was curious i re- i assume the reason we needed portability is because you know they weren't being used appropriately or um you know so my i wrote, actually wrote a bill to say we needed to help entrepreneurs because we're we're last in the area on entrepreneur growth and um i i think we need to do help more to help small businesses because we know that small businesses are the ones that um Create the majority of jobs in our state. and I think we're not doing enough to help them. And you're right. I think I think we've skewed this to um, some of the bigger uh, operators and, uh, and and not holding them accountable for what they're going to do to help the state.
3: And representative, you're a co-author of the bill that would also say that if a company outsources when taking money from Wedeck, it's ineligible for five years because we're also right. not only moving jobs around the state, we're actually supporting companies that are sending more jobs out of the state or even overseas than, than jobs they're creating here.
2: You know, we're, I'm also on the Public Benefits Committee, and it's their comments are always about accountability, accountability, accountability to the public for you know inadvertent errors and very small amounts of money. Um, and here there seems to be a, a dearth of concern about – accountability when it comes to huge sums of money
0: so you mentioned that um you heard back from wedek could you tell us a little bit more what i mean what was their response what did they say in particular to well beyond just uh, the policy but the lack of even reaching out to the folks from janesville the leaders or anything any any response
2: actually we didn't uh, i looked i pulled the um press announcement later so um it didn't aggravate me till till right till last night a lot because I saw that they knew ahead of time and you know um, so they just addressed that they weren't giving specifically the credits for the jobs but it just was for the the investment it didn't you know they didn't address the fact that they didn't have the courtesy to let the officials know here or anything so that wasn't addressed that's that's a whole nother letter to go.
0: So what's next? I mean, uh, obviously this is getting a lot of a lot of attention. I know it did uh, articles we have posted about this on Facebook have you know gotten extremely high amounts of response, and people are very upset about it. What are you and other uh, uh, Democratic leaders? Has there been any discussion on sort of where to go next on this, and how to, how do we deal with this and really use this as an opportunity to sort of demonstrate the not only the failed policy but kind of what ought to be. Um, uh, progressive vision on how this ought to be operating
2: well you know just what you're doing i mean at, in in this legislature at this point in time as you notice when when your next topics that you hear you're, you're going to talk about there's little we can do except try to change the next election outcome um some of this stuff just has to cease and desist and there's no way we get to do that until we change the election and who's in office so i you know, we—I guess—we'll just keep posting and 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 writing letters and articles and and hope that it, it garners more attraction from from the public. We don't want an agency that caters to who's in power and gives away our tax dollars to those that are in power. I mean, that's just something the public should not want. Whoever is in charge. So, um, I guess the strategy is just keep pounding away.
0: Well, we want to thank you for. Playing a leadership role on on this issue and making sure that the word got out. Uh, obviously, we feel very terrible for what's happening to Janesville, um, but we we agree with you. We're well. We're about a year away from from a major election, and um, we need to keep our eyes on that prize and, and stay focused on making sure we educate the public about what's going on. And we're going to continue to do that with WEDEC, And we want to thank you for 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 leading in this area and other areas, particularly, as Robert mentioned, some of the other outsourcing issues. So thank you very much.
2: Right, You'll have an exciting conversation with your next couple, um, campaign finance and GAB. So oh. have fun on that topic.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Representative. And uh, thanks did. for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much. Bye-bye now.
0: Bye. Obviously, it's great to have Representative Colsty sort of there to lead the fight. She makes a really good point, right? This is, we're about to, we're going to switch topics here to, the gab and campaign finance bills and 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 what an uphill battle it is, one year away that, that election certainly when when you deal with with these kinds of issues you can definitely see the importance of it. So, but with that, let's um let's talk about the latest that's happening with the legislation around the government accountability board and and campaign finance. Um, the news this week has been, I guess, in relative speaking, positive in that there's been a tremendous Pushback and outreach by regular people like yourselves. I know Citizen Action and a number of other organizations we work with, the League of Women Voters, a whole bunch of groups, Common Cause, Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Uh, you know, we are Wisconsin. Lots of different groups have been calling, having calling their members, particularly in these targeted Senate districts, and encouraging them to call their senators about this bill. And we seem to have had success. We think there could be as many as five senators who are in opposition to either the gab bill and the, or the campaign finance bill. And before I throw it open to the panel's thoughts, I'd like to be a little bit clear about what the three major areas are where we think there's um, some upset among some of these Republican senators. One is basically the gab bill, the judges, right? Getting getting rid of the judges. There's uh, the the nonpartisan judges. So there are a number of senators who are upset about that. The other is doubling the limits that you can contribute to a candidate. And the third issue that seems to have real contention is around the coordination uh, between candidates and issue groups, which we've talked about. So there's a number of fronts. It ain't just one. And um, we are now seeing Americans for Corporate Prosperity pushback with uh, calls in. Robert, I know uh, you had the chance yesterday to take a look at the fine uh, image that they're using uh, to, to generate calls uh, that seems to be mocking or aping Soviet propaganda, and quite frankly, um, the actual facts are probably worse than Soviet propaganda. Give us, give us an update on, on, on this. Well, these are
3: leading questions. <laughs> Matt brought this to my attention. <laughs> Uh, but Gab is generating calls with a bizarre kind of digital ads that claim that Gab, uh, you know, breaks down doors and does raids and and silences people and wh- during investigations. In other words, taking everything that's alleged about John Doe and applying it to the Governor Kelly board, as if Kevin Kennedy, the, the Governor Kelly board, was lead it running through suburban cul-de-sacs with a battering ram. And so we did actually, because we've been asked repeatedly to do so when we see something that catches our attention, I, has been referred to PolitiFact, so we'll see if a PolitiFact analysis is going to be forthcoming or not. This we'll, one was we'll so obvious. Link. We'll yeah. put
0: it. We'll put the image on our uh, website. It's it's unbelievable. But
3: it, we, we have to understand conservative messaging. We get all upset because the facts aren't true. That's not how they proceed in figuring out how to persuade someone. They decide what is the most powerful emotional thing they can say that pushes their frame, and then they just make it up.
0: Definitely made it up, Jorna. You've been leading on these issues, democracy, for a long time, and uh, you know wanted to get your thoughts on the latest events.
1: I got to be honest; um, I'm a little bit surprised that there's some doubt among the Senate. I really kind of felt like they would lockstep, hurry and pass this one down the road. So it gives me some hope, and I really want to thank the organizations that have been putting the pressure on. And that this is coming from everyday citizens. You know, part of it is is almost laughable the part about coordination between independent expenditures and candidates because that's what the right has been doing for oh, you know as long as I can remember, they just don't call it that. So I guess we're just gonna legalize it eventually here in Wisconsin. but it does it does give me some hope. the, the Government Accountability Board, while it may have some things that we don't like necessarily at times, it is not a broken, institution. The state elections board prior to the GAB was a broken, partisan institution. that was abused, frankly, by both parties. So I am am heartened to hear that we're making a difference for once in our Wisconsin.
3: You know, surprisingly, I'm a little less optimistic than Jorna, which is not usually the case. Um, (laughs) I think that you're right, that part of this is just the argument and all the calls that are being generated. I think another part of it is is that these senators that are that are holding out are more long-time legislators uh, who have had political careers and kind of understand better than a lot of these folks in the assembly that when you empower the independent groups, you're losing the power of the candidate and the the, 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 the frankly the power of a state senator. And I don't think a Luther Rosen or Sheila Harsdorf want to hand over complete authority and control on the issues to Americans for Prosperity, just for example. And so there's that little tension, but it only seems to exist in the Senate. On the Assembly side, they seem blissfully unaware that they are essentially making their offices irrelevant.
1: I I think one of the things that we don't talk about quite as much is this whole raising the cap on the individual contribution limit, which really combined with the power to coordinate with independent expenditures makes our candidates even more wholly owned subsidiaries of special interests. I mean, if the wealthiest donors can just increase their influence and increase their need to control WEDEC dollars and things like that, you know, what kind of Wisconsin is this going to be? And I think that goes back to your point, Robert, that that some of those senators
3: are indeed taking a second look at that. And uh, these are all legacy restrictions that are left. I mean, you wonder why even have contribution limits? Why have disclosure? Why not just have unlimited secret contributions to legislators? I mean, that's the, the, you know, unlike the NRI conspiracies about having any background check linked to the elimination of guns, we really are in a path the elimination of all campaign finance rules. And it's a bizarre patchwork. You have still have low limits for PACs because they're afraid of labor unions. Uh, you still, if you're a lobbyist, I can't give anything of more than a dollar of value to a legislator. So when I went out for drinks with a legislator earlier this week, I could not— buy them one drink, but I could apparently do a multi-million dollar independent expenditure on their behalf and coordinate with them uh, if I so chose, if I had that kind of money.
0: Yeah, and and clearly the the senators have picked up on the gray, the immense gray area that, that would be on this coordination, right? I mean, I was joking with Robert, you can just see the ads Send, tell Senator Sluggo, send a message in November, right? Like uh, you know, not using, vote for, didn't vote say vote for, vote against, right? So um, uh, look, the good news, the good news here is there is opposition. There, There's a chance that uh, we could see these bills not be as negative. And so uh, let's uh, take our, t- our cues from the opposition. The four that they are still uh, targeting are Rob Coles, Sheila Harsdorf, Luther Olson, and Jerry Petrowski. So I could assume that they have very good information that those are the four that are the most squeaky. So really want to encourage folks to call those four. But please call your state senator. We'll have the 1-800 number and other links so how you can contact your, your state senator. Do that immediately, Robert. And I have
3: a goal for progressives across the state. Let's keep the Lion of Rippin, uh, Luther Olson, uh, solid this time. Let's bring him home and keep him on the right side and, and prevent him from flipping back. So with that,
0: we are going to switch topics. We want to talk a little bit about a uh, new piece of legislation that has been getting some media attention this week that Republicans are pushing. It's of course a wonderful piece of legislation. I say that sarcastically. Um, this is around a new piece of legislation that would restrict, greatly restrict the ability of school districts to raise revenue to do things like add building, you know, help improve the quality of the school. Uh, through referendum. And uh, so in order to help us have this conversation, we we have a special guest that is Tamarin Cornelius. She is an analyst with Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Thanks for joining us today. Sure thing. So this week, you guys released some data that helped provide some really good information as to why this piece of legislation is so terrible for public schools. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the information you released related to this?
4: Okay. Well, when uh, school districts want to borrow money or to lift the spending caps that the state has placed on school districts, they can send a referendum to voters to ask for their approval for, for new resources. But a proposal that lawmakers are advancing would restrict when districts could do that. So this proposal would prohibit school districts from sending a referendum to voters for a period of two years after a referendum was rejected by voters. So if a referendum went to voters and voters turned it down, then school districts would not be able to send another referendum to voters for a period of two years, even if the second one had nothing to do with the first one. So we took a look backwards to see how many referenda this would have affected had it been in place. So starting July 2011, then there would have been applied this particular rule where you can't have a referendum for two years after a failed one. Then there would have been 36 referenda that later passed that wouldn't have been allowed to pass as when they did if these rules had been in place. So that's 36 referenda in 31 school districts in those referendum, voters approved almost $200 million of new resources for students, and those resources wouldn't be there in that same form if this rule had been in effect.
0: Well, that's a significant number of, of referendums that would not happen, and obviously a significant amount of resources that would not be available for uh, for education. So one of the things that I'm curious about, maybe you could help us with this, how is is this is this different in terms of we're seeing a lot more of these referendums being approved uh, post Walker than we saw beforehand uh, due to the great restrictions uh, that were uh, put on education funding at the state level?
4: right. the The Wisconsin Taxpayers Alliance put out an analysis about a year ago where they took a look at how likely voters were to approve referenda. And they showed that, um, it used to be that voters approved about half a referendum, referendum, but that has climbed in recent years, and and now it's about two thirds of referenda that get put before voters they approve.
0: Oh, that's a significant increase. I, it it doesn't surprise me. I mean, just knowing how how cash strapped, you know, i I live in Milwaukee, our district is, and we know that that's happening around the state. Um, this strikes me obviously is an extremely dangerous piece of legislation.
4: Right now, we have this this climate of very uh, very limited new resources for schools. But there's always been this as part of the rhetoric. There's always been this idea that, well, if communities really value their their schools and their education, then they, they can raise taxes on themselves. So if the, the lawmakers have um, have not raised revenue limits, but there's been this understanding, well, you know, voters can do that. Voters can raise the revenue limits in their own school district if they really want to. And that's kind of been the safety valve a little bit for, for these recent very limited increases in schools or cuts for schools. But the proposal okay. would be taking away that sort of safety valve because, or we'd be reducing it, I should say, because there'd be this period after a failed referendum where school districts wouldn't be allowed to, to put another proposal before voters.
1: Well, this is Jorna. Thanks so much for being with us today. I want to call this exactly what it is. And it's another form of the attacks on public schools that we have seen from Republicans time and time and time again here in Wisconsin and their promotion of an alternative system through choice and charter schools is what this will inevitably lead to in my opinion. So let's not beat around the bush and call it anything other than just a blatant attack on local control of our public school systems.
0: And we've
3: definitely seen a lot of that. So, well, Oh, Robert has a question. I would, no, no, I would just concur that it seems that the folks who are pushing this like the results of democracy unless it doesn't turn out as they like, in which case uh, they're going to speak for a minority of voters in these districts rather than giving the people the right to decide. So this is very problematic. So Jordan is absolutely right about the continuing attack on education funding that's going on, but it's also an attack on democracy. You get a sense reading the articles that they're upset about the minority of voters who were against the referendum, uh, even though they lost the vote. Now they're gonna override the the local voters through action of their their legislators.
0: Well, I wanna thank you for joining us today to provide this information. And uh, obviously we think the Wisconsin Council of Children and Families is a critically important organization in providing this kind of timely data that really helps us better understand the policy implications that are being put forward. And, uh, cause this stuff moves so fast that uh, they, they introduce these things. There's very little public hearing. And, um, it was extremely helpful to have this information come out this week. So we very much want to thank you and, and, uh, your organization for all the work you do over there. Thank you. We'll have a link to the report or to the research numbers and to the Wisconsin Council of Children and Families on our website. Thanks a lot again for joining us. So, Jorna, you mentioned uh, how the previous uh, legislation we talked about uh, really is a way to expand the voucher program. There were some very interesting numbers that came out this week around the voucher program, and the state voucher program doubled the amount of students this year. It's up to now 2,514. Of course, this program is separate from uh, the Milwaukee program, but Racine's program grew about 23%. So, Jorna, a lot of what you're talking about, we continue to see the voucher program growing. Um, Jorna, I do want to get your comments uh, on our favorite congressman here from Wisconsin, Paul Ryan. It looks like it's basically done. We have a new Speaker of the House.
1: Yes, I would would prefer that you not... refer to him ever again as Congressman Ryan, but it is Speaker or His Excellency, perhaps. Excellent. Um, so I think, you know, so so Paul's in. There you go. We, we have a Speaker from Wisconsin and lucky us because as the New York Times headline, I believe it was, said that he is ready to manage the chaos, which I think is pretty an apt description of what's happening in Congress these days after this whole <laughs> debacle that they went through to begin with. Um, I will be very interested to see what he comes out of the gate with uh, in the next, you know, coming week or two in trying to organize his herd of cats that have proclaimed some allegiance to him because he has become this martyr for the cause, this sacrificial lamb, this good-hearted, you know, Soul that heard the call to politics, as Robert referenced, last last week. So um, I'm, I'm interested and saddened in some ways that he has risen again, but I'm, I'm interested to watch it happen.
0: Well, Joanna, you are going to be our official Paul Ryan watcher, so um, that's <laughs> your new job here on the podcast every, every week or so. We're just going to check in and uh, see if there's any Paul Ryan news. So back, uh, if we focus a little bit back to our state um when you know when we're not busy talking about switchblades and machetes here in Wisconsin, Robert, I know this week was a big week for the Affordable Care Act in Wisconsin. We found out that the what the new rates are going to be on the health insurance exchange throughout the state. Robert, why don't you give us a a little bit of an update on that?
3: So we've talked about this on previous podcasts. Wisconsin's the only state that did not release its twenty sixteen rates. Uh, for the uh, federal marketplace ahead of time. So 49 states did. We did not. Uh, And so Citizen Action called that uh, out and uh, talked about, the frankly, the desire of the Walker administration and and his insurance commissioner to keep consumers in the dark. Well, finally, the federal government uh, posted a lot of data Sunday night, so we crunched the numbers immediately. In fact, our lead organizer, Kevin Kane, is our lead uh, numbers cruncher. And so what we found is we found that there was a there was a, an increase in premiums overall. By the way, it's dramatically different from city to city, and we will Brian will be giving you a link to all of this. Uh, so it really, d- well, I'll give you the aggregate number, but in overall, it's very different from city to city. But it's a 4.2 percent premium increase for the benchmark plan. That's the best comparison plan. That's the second low-cost silver plan. What was stunning, though, was—and that's on a—it's lower than we used to have, but it's on a higher base. We had the fourth most expensive insurance rates in the country, and so it's a 4.2 percent increase in already high rates. But in terms of deductibles, uh, Wisconsin consumers next year are going to see a 40 percent increase on average. That varies dramatically between cities again, but that's a $1,253 increase. So there's massive cost shifting going on to consumers. And what we need to understand is, is that we live in a state that's expensive in part because our state government, our governor, Walker, uh, the majorities in the legislatures, their entire health policy is to simply try to sabotage the Affordable Care Act instead of doing what the public wants, which is move beyond that five-year-old fight and work together to, to, to improve the system and especially take on costs. We're doing nothing about health insurance rates and accountability. We're doing nothing about prescription drug costs. All the other things that are driving these numbers. And so we need to understand that there's one side that's for sabotage and turning the healthcare debate over the affordable crack in the Northern Ireland of American politics, i.e., it never goes away, versus people who want to be constructive and actually try to make healthcare affordable and high quality in Wisconsin. So this is going to hurt a lot. If you think about how real wages have declined by 14% in Wisconsin since 2000, but we're going to see a 40% increase in deductibles in one year. Uh, That is just stunning, and people know deductibles mean that's the amount you pay before your insurance kicks in. So you're basically uninsured until you kick it in, and the higher your deductibles become, uh, the more it becomes simply a catastrophic health plan. And I might add, as high as these deductibles are, and the average now for this plan is $4,390, they want – the Republicans running for president want it even higher – when they say the word health savings account, we're all for health savings accounts, including Donald Trump, what they're really saying is, because what those are connected to is high deductible health plans. So they want plans with $10,000, $15,000 deductibles. That's what they're running on.
0: So we're going to continue to be uh, monitoring uh, and agitating for better and more affordable health care, and we think that's going to be a major issue in the 2016 elections. And uh, so with that... Jorna, what are you doing this weekend?
1: Dude, it's Halloween. What do you think I'm doing? Uh, I just had
0: to say, I had to ask, what are you doing this weekend?
1: Uh, So on Saturday night from 5 to 8 is Trick or Treat in my neighborhood of Bayview, and that's always a good time, so I'm having a joint party with some friends. And then that evening I am going down to Turner Hall to see – Two
0: really great bands, Doomtree and Lizzo. Nice. Good, good. Robert, you going to Doomtree and Lizzo?
3: <laughs> I have no such plan. Oh, uh, come on.
1: Bang-a-rang, Robert. Bang-a-rang.
3: So, I am going to D.C. early for a conference, but I'm going to go see my Aunt Eloise, who is a podcast listener and a strong supporter of CisNaxia, Wisconsin. Hi,
0: Aunt Eloise.
3: Uh but before that, but uh, it'll be, I'll have done it before you hear this. Uh, Thursday night football in college football is a showdown between my undergraduate institution, the Pitt Panthers, and the North Carolina Tar Heels for control of the uh, fabled coastal division of the uh, ACC, which is about equivalent to the Western <laughs> division of the Big Ten. But nonetheless, it's still exciting. Uh, maybe closer to the whack, Robert, but that's okay. So yeah, I think it's actually a lot
0: stronger than (laughs) the Big Ten West, Matt. (laughs) That that's probably true. Oh, those poor Iowa Hawkeyes, undefeated and nobody cares. (laughs) Okay, it's official, Jorna. Paul Ryan is officially (laughs) elected. It's so historic that we're able to do this on the podcast. That's oh, it's so exciting. I can I'm. I'm shaking. I'm very excited. So yeah, it's Halloween weekend and this is the first Halloween. The Bruskies are doing nothing for Halloween. Our house is already decorated. I've told you my wife is uh, obsessed. We've been decorated pretty much since Labor Day. We're going to actually be going down to Indianapolis for uh, the last outdoor race of the year. And it's a Halloween race, Jorna. We get to dress up in costumes. And there's a fabulous haunted house on the uh, grounds where the racetrack is. It's uh, Marion County, which is the county of uh, outside Indianapolis. So we are uh, very much looking forward to some racing and then visiting the haunted house around midnight. So that is what I'm doing this weekend. Very excited. And, of course, the Packers are back in action. And so uh, everyone, I'm sure, in uh, Packerland is thrilled and happy. And and how about those bucks? That was quite an exciting start. Oh, that's right, not so good. Hopefully, they can get things righted. With that, we want to thank our guests this week, and always we want to thank Brian Wilkovich, our producer, who makes this podcast happen. So we will see you next week.